From New York, this is Democracy Now! In 1970, a 28-year-old recent law school graduate became the most wanted woman in America. Angela Davis was replaced on the FBI's 10 most wanted list this afternoon by Bernadine Ray Dorn, described as an underground leader of the weathermen. They said she was an enemy of the state. Within the next 14 days, we will attack a symbol or institution of American injustice. A homegrown terrorist. A bomb exploded early this morning in the Pentagon. J. Edgar Hoover called her the most dangerous woman in America. I'm going to read a declaration of a state of war. She's also my mother. Today, we spend the hour with a woman who replaced Angela Davis on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, Bernadine Dorn, leader of the radical 60s organization Weather Underground. It was 50 years ago this year they bombed the Pentagon to protest the Vietnam War. We'll speak with Bernadine Dorn and her activist husband, Bill Ayers, about how they went underground to avoid arrest and raised a family as they continued to fight for revolution. Now, a new podcast series produced by their son, Zaid Ayers Dorn, explores their family history. It's called Mother Country Radicals. We'll speak to Zaid, who also speaks to weather underground leaders who were captured and went to prison, like the late Kathy Boudin, mother of former San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin, and with Kokoya Shakur, daughter of Asada Shakur, who's in exile in Cuba. Asada Shakur has just turned 75, Bernadine Dorn 80. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Kentucky, the death toll from last week's massive rainstorms and flooding has risen to 28, including several children. On Sunday, Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear told NBC's Meet the Press that recovery crews face weeks of work, even as forecasters predict more rain in the coming days. This is one of the most devastating, deadly floods that we have seen in our history. With the level of water, uh, we're going to be finding bodies for weeks. Many of them swept hundreds of yards, maybe quarter mile plus from where they were uh, lost. Meteorologists say the record-breaking deluge that brought flooding and mudslides to eastern Kentucky would have had a one-in-a-thousand chance of happening, if not for climate change. And California Governor Gavin Newsom has declared a state of emergency after a fire in the Klamath National Forest grew to become the state's largest of the year, scorching more than 52,000 acres near the California-Oregon border. In Montana, the Elmo wildfire expanded overnight, tripling in size to over 11 square miles. In other climate news, in Iran, at least 80 people were killed and dozens more remain missing after heavy rains triggered flash floods impacting hundreds of villages, towns and cities. As the climate emergency wreaks havoc across the globe, big oil's making record profits. During the second quarter, Exxon, Chevron and Shell made a combined $46 billion over a three-month span, in part due to high gas prices. 
On Capitol Hill, Democratic leaders are pushing the Senate to pass new legislation on health care taxes and the climate crisis before senators leave for their summer recess Friday. Last week, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced a surprise deal with conservative West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin on a 10-year, $739 billion domestic policy package that seeks to reduce U.S. carbon emissions by roughly 40 percent by the end of this decade. All eyes are now on Arizona Democratic Senator Kirsten in cinema, who has yet to announce whether she'll support the legislation. In other news from Capitol Hill, the House has narrowly approved a new bill on assault weapons. The bill now heads to the Senate, where it is not expected to advance. A ship carrying 26,000 tons of corn left the Ukrainian port of Odessa today. It's the first ship to leave Ukraine under a deal brokered by the United Nations and Turkey to reopen ports on the Black Sea, which have been closed since Russia's invasion began over five months ago. On Saturday, the CEO of one of Ukraine's largest grain producers and richest entrepreneurs was killed in the southern port city of Mykolaiv during intense Russian shelling. Alexei Vadatursky died along with his wife when a missile hit their home. Meanwhile, a small drone attacked the headquarters of Russia's Black Sea Fleet in Crimea. Russia accused Ukraine of carrying out the attack, which injured six people. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has arrived in Singapore to begin an Asian trip that will include stops in Malaysia, South Korea and Japan. CNN reports Pelosi will also visit Taiwan despite warnings from China and criticism from top Biden administration officials. A Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson said today such a trip would be, quote, a gross interference in China's internal affairs. Pope Francis has wrapped up his trip to Canada, where he apologized for the abuse of indigenous children who were separated from their families and sent to church-run residential schools where they face psychological, physical and sexual violence. At least 4,000 children died. On his return flight home, the pope described the forced assimilation of indigenous children to be a form of genocide. I apologize. I asked forgiveness for this work, which was genocide. I condemned this, taking children away and trying to change their culture, their minds, change their traditions, race, and an entire culture. The top watchdog at the Department of Homeland Security abandoned efforts to recover text messages sent by the agency's top two officials around the time of the January 6th assault on the Capitol and failed to warn Congress that important information about the insurrection may have been erased. That's according to The Washington Post, which reports that DHS Inspector General Joseph Kafari, a Trump appointee, first learned last December of the missing texts involving then-acting DHS head Chad Wolf and his deputy Ken Cuccinelli, but made no effort to alert lawmakers. On Friday morning, the FBI raided several properties in St. Louis, Missouri, and St. Petersburg, Florida, tied to the African People's Socialist Party, which leads the Uhuru movement. The Pan-Africanist group has been a longtime advocate for reparations for slavery and a vocal critic of U.S. foreign policy. The raids came as the Justice Department indicted a Russian man living overseas. He's accused of using U.S.-based groups to spread Russian propaganda. The groups were not named in the indictment, but reportedly include the African People's Socialist Party. One of the FBI raids targeted the home of Amali Eshetela, the founder of the African People's Socialist Party. He accused the FBI of targeting the group for its political work.
They see in the African People's Socialist Party a vanguard for the struggle for the liberation of our people. They see that because not just what we do here in the United States, but because we have the temerity to do like Garvey, to do like Malcolm X, and take the struggle of black people around the world. In Guatemala, press freedom and human rights groups are condemning the arrest of veteran, award-winning journalist José Rubén Zamora. On Friday, police raided his home and the office of his newspaper, El Periodico. Zamora has been accused, without evidence, of money laundering and blackmail. But he and supporters say his arrest is in retaliation for the newspaper's probes into corruption by Guatemala's right-wing president, Alejandro Giamate, and other officials. Zamora spoke to reporters after being taken into custody. They chased me and my children in the streets in a very dangerous way. My family had to exile. My home was illegally raided. But they haven't gone as far as now, with them formally arresting me. I don't know how long the process will take. We keep facing a narco-klepto dictatorship. Four years ago, our apparent democracy was transformed, electing a president that is a thief who has been assaulting us for the past four years. Us as Guatemalans, we don't have the capacity to defend ourselves. Basketball legend and civil rights activist Bill Russell has died at the age of 88. As a player, he helped transform the game as he led the Boston Celtics to 11 NBA championships during his 13-year career. In 1967, he became the NBA's first black coach. Off the court, Russell was a longtime civil rights advocate. In 1961, he led a boycott of a game in Kentucky after two of his black teammates were denied service at their hotel. In 1963, Russell participated in the March on Washington, where Dr. King spoke. He also spoke out against school segregation and racism in Boston, which he described as a, quote, traumatizing place to live. And the pioneering black actress Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek, has died at the age of 89. Nichols was one of the first black women to have a leading role on television. In the 1960s, one of her biggest fans was Dr. Martin Luther King, who told her, quote, when we see you, we see ourselves, and we see ourselves as intelligent and beautiful and proud, he said. Nichelle Nichols later worked with NASA to help the space agency recruit women and people of color. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, we spend the hour with an activist who replaced Angela Davis on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, Bernadine Dorn, leader of the radical 60s and 70s organization called the Weather Underground. It was 50 years ago this year that they bombed the Pentagon to protest the Vietnam War. They also battled with police during days of rage on the streets of Chicago and partnered with black liberation groups to rob banks. When Bernadine Dorn and her fellow weather underground activist husband Bill Ayers literally went underground to avoid arrest, they then raised a family as they continued to fight for revolution. Now, a new podcast series explores their family history. It's produced by their son, Zaid Ayersdorn. This is the trailer for Mother Country Radicals. In 1970, a 28-year-old recent law school graduate became the most wanted woman in America. 
Angela Davis was replaced on the FBI's 10 most wanted list this afternoon by Bernadine Ray Dorn, described as an underground leader of the weathermen. They said she was an enemy of the state. Within the next 14 days, we will attack a symbol or institution of American injustice. A homegrown terrorist. A bomb exploded earlier this morning in the Pentagon. J. Edgar Hoover called her the most dangerous woman in America. I'm going to read a declaration of a state of war. She's also my mother. The Mother Country Radicals podcast series was created, written, and hosted by Zaid Ayers Dorn for Crooked Media and Audacity, and features interviews with his parents, Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers, as well as other former Weather Underground leaders who were captured and went to prison, like the late Kathy Boudin, whose mother of former San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin, who then became a brother to Zaid, raised by Ayers. And Dorn. Zaid also speaks to Kokoya Shakur, daughter of Asada Shakur, who still lives in exile in Cuba. We'll hear from both later. After resurfacing, Bernadine Dorn became the founding director of the Children and Family Justice Center at Northwestern University School of Law. Bill Ayers is now a retired professor in the College of Education at the University of Illinois, Chicago. The final installment of the 10-part Mother Country Radical series is just out. Today, we bring you our interview with Zaid and his parents about the series, which premiered last month. I spoke with them, along with Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez. We begin with one of the many archival clips featured in Mother Country Radicals. In May 1970, Los Angeles radio station KPFK received an anonymous phone call, leading them to a cassette tape hidden in a public phone booth. It begins like this. Hello, this is Bernadine Dorn. I'm going to read a declaration of a state of war. This is the first communication from the Weatherman Underground. Bernadine Dorn is my mother. She's recording this tape when she's just 28 years old, surrounded by a few friends in a safe house in San Francisco, a one-room apartment they've rented using a fake ID. The place is crowded. And most of the people in the room are even younger than she is. Student activists and grad school dropouts in their early to mid-twenties. There's a device the size of a lunchbox set up in the middle of a table. An old-school tape cassette player with a red record button. All over the world, people fighting American imperialism look to America's youth to use our strategic position behind enemy lines to join forces in the destruction of the empire. Kids know the lines are drawn. Revolution is touching all of our lives. So, Zaid Ayers Dorn, can you take it from there? We have just listened to the voice of Bernadine Dorn on Pacifica radio station KPFK in Los Angeles. Describe how that cassette got on the air. Yeah, well, the Weather Underground had just <clears throat> gone underground and was, um, you know, deciding what to do next. My mom recorded that tape, sent it to radio stations, basically announcing that they were about to launch a bombing campaign against the U.S. government in protest of the war in Vietnam and in protest of police violence against black people here in America. And so, um, yeah, what the show does is goes back from that moment and tells the story of how my mom was radicalized, what took her from being a law student and a straight-A student at the University of Chicago, all the way to being on the FBI's top 10 wanted list, and her friends and comrades and how they all got to that point as well. 
And Zaid, could you tell us what uh, what drove you to to decide to do this podcast? It's an amazing, amazing uh, series of of of, uh, of shows. Could you talk about the motivation and why at this particular time? Yeah, thanks, Juan. Yeah, there were really two motivations. One was political and one was personal. Um, the political motivation was I started it right before the pandemic began. Uh, when Trump was president, I was thinking about the history of resistance in America and how young people had come together at various times in our history to resist fascism and white supremacy and authoritarianism. And as I went along, you know, George Floyd was murdered and we had this racial uprising on the street. And as that was happening, I was interviewing my parents and other folks, people people in the Black Panther Party, people in the Black Liberation Army. And I was learning that so many of them were radicalized by violence from police against black people here in America. So the death of Fred Hampton, the killing of a 10-year-old boy named Clifford Glover in Queens, that, those were seminal events for so many of these radicals in the 70s. And I started to realize there's this kind of interesting echo happening today. That was the political motivation. Uh, the personal motivation was, you know, I was really, we were separated by the pandemic. Uh, I was missing my parents and I was also thinking, you know, they were getting older. My mom was about to turn 80. And I was thinking about wanting to get, wanting to ask them questions I'd never asked, wanting to get their voices on tape for my daughters and for future generations. And uh, yeah, just wanting to kind of have an archive of what they did, how they thought, and uh, what made them who they are today. Well, and I'd like to welcome uh, Bill Ayers and uh, Bernadine Dorn, uh, both uh Former comrades of mine at, uh, at, with Students for a Democratic Society decades ago, uh, I wanted to ask uh, Bill, the the title Mother Country Radicals, can you talk about the origin and the meaning of that phrase? Yeah, I think that it's a great title for this series because what Zaid found as he was going through the archives and listening to people is that this was the, this was the title kind of given to us white radicals at the time, by the Black Panther Party, by Fred Hampton, by Huey P. Newton. And they said they didn't really—they weren't interested in allies. They were interested in comrades. They wanted to think of us not as people who were helping the struggle, but people who were invested ourselves in the end of white supremacy, in fighting against police violence and empire. And so they always referred to us as their comrades, their mother country radicals. And that's what we that's what we took on. And I think Zaid took that as a as a starting point for thinking about the coming together of the Weather Underground and the Black Liberation Army. I want to get um, Zaid's comment on this, but first go to Fred Hampton himself, the Black Panther leader in Chicago, before he was assassinated by the Chicago police, but speaking that same year in 1969. A lot of people don't understand the Black Panther Party's uh, relationship with white mother country radicals. A lot of people don't even understand that word that they uses a lot. What we're saying is that there are white people in the mother country that are for the same type of thing that we are for simulating revolution in the, in the mother country. And we said that we'll work with anybody from coalition with anybody that has revolution on their mind. Zaid Dorn, talk about your choice of this title. 
Yeah, well, I really wanted to highlight what I found as I was doing this research into my family and into this history, which was this kind of remarkable moment when white radicals, black radicals, people of all colors were coming together to try to resist uh, the American government, white supremacy, imperialism abroad. Um, you know, Fred Hampton was involved right before his death in trying to put together what he called a rainbow coalition of activist groups here in Chicago. And my mom was running SDS at the time. They were part of that rainbow coalition. So there was this effort to bring these groups together. And then, of course, Fred was murdered by the Chicago police. And, and so part of the series is about trying to understand how white radicals and black radicals collaborated, how that was complicated, how it was messy, and what kind of lessons we can learn uh, today from that, that effort. Let's go to the remarkable archival footage um, that is in Mother Country Radicals of Fred Hampton's assassination. About 10 Panthers went to the uh, Monroe Street address and had dinner and Kool-Aid um, before they went to sleep. Fred is supposed to stay at his mom's house that night, but it's late. He goes in the bedroom with his fiance, Deborah Johnson. She's eight months pregnant with Fred's child. Still half sleep. I looked up and I saw bullets coming from it looked like the front of the apartment from the kitchen area. They were pigs were just shooting. She later remembered that night. This is after she gave birth, and she's cradling her baby, Fred Jr. You can hear him cooing in the background. The mattress is just going. You could feel bullets going into it. I just knew it was dead, everybody in there. Um, when he looked up, just looked up, he didn't say a word, and he didn't move, except for moving his head up. He laid his head back down. He never said a word, and he never got up out the bed. Uh, the person who was in the room, they kept hollering out, stop shooting, stop shooting. We have a pregnant woman, a pregnant sister in here. Pigs kept on shooting. So uh, he kept on hollering out. Finally, they stopped. They pushed uh me and the other brother by the uh, kitchen door and told us to face the wall. Heard a pig say, he's barely alive, he'll barely make it. So then they started shooting the pigs, they started shooting, up, shooting again. I heard a sister scream. They stopped shooting. The pig said, he's good and dead now. And through all the gunfire, all the screaming. Fred Hampton never wakes up. The autopsy shows cecobarbital, a sedative in his system. William O'Neill, the panther who made the Kool-Aid that night, turns out he's also an FBI informant. Fred had apparently been drugged on the orders of federal law enforcement and assassinated by the Chicago police. It was December 4th, 1969, and somehow I remember seeing footage, um, Bernadine, of you walking into the house. This was—was was it the same day after he was assassinated? Was it a day later? But if you can talk about who Frampton was and how that assassination even further radicalized you, what it meant for the movement in this country and for the Weather Underground. Well, Amy, I remember everyone my age who was around remembers where they were 
the day that Fred Hampton was assassinated and Mark Clark, um, his colleague. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it seared into our head because it was people we knew, because it was a city of Chicago, because the Red Squad and the sheriffs and the police all collaborated with the FBI. We took six years to bring them to trial and prove it. Um, the People's Law Office did an incredible job doing that. But I remember uh, one of the things that they did was they immediately went and took the door off of its hinges and, and uh, invited the city of Chicago to walk into that apartment building and look at what uh, the police and the FBI had done in the process of murdering black radical revolutionary leaders like Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. So, yes, I went that day, as, as many of us did. It was uh, reminiscent uh, of other Chicago massacres and kind of mass participation in observing—not the body, in this case, but the site. Uh, and um, so it, 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 had a, it had a Chicago feel about it. And it was a somber and, and terrible moment where we felt, you know, we must act. We must do more than we've been doing. We must do more than the kind of solidarity that we've offered. And, and we used to talk about it as putting our bodies between the bullets and the black radical leadership in the United States. And, and Zaid, I wanted to ask you, uh, some of the people, I mean, many of the people that you interviewed, I, I knew personally back then, uh, folks like Kathy Boudin, Kathy Wilkerson, Eleanor Stein, Jeff Jones, uh, Jennifer Dawn, and Brian Flanagan, who was a good friend of mine uh, back uh, years ago. What did you take away from their uh, assessment of their role back then in the movement and and uh, the whether it's uh, bitterness uh, uh, pride uh, uh, contrition which uh, what what did you get from uh, your interviews with them yeah well, it was really interesting well it's funny because one the names you mentioned are all members of the Weather Underground. I also interviewed Angela Davis, Jamal Joseph, Jihad Abdelmumet, Sekou Odinga, members of the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army. So, and what I, what I took away from all of them, you know, I, I was talking to a lot of them about how they had first become radicalized, and I kept hearing these echoes, white radicals and black radicals, over and over, radicalized by state violence against black leaders. So many of them, you know, the, the Martin Luther King's assassination, Fred Hampton's assassination, other killings of, of black people by police. So one thing is they were all kind of telling me the same story about how they came to fight that struggle. And then in terms of how they look back on it, I would say, I mean, the series talks a lot about that. And later in the series, I get into regrets and questions of tactics and what they would do differently now. And I think the, the common denominator is that there's a lot of acknowledgement of mistakes made, but there's also a lot of sense of we were on the right side of history, we were struggling on the right side, and it's hard to regret the kind of willingness to put yourself, put your future, put your body on the line for what you believe if you feel like what you believe is right. We'll be back with Zaid Ayers Dorn, producer of the Mother Country Radical series and his parents, Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers, in 30 seconds.
Draft Morning by the Birds. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Today, we're spending the hour with former Weather Underground leaders Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers and their son, Zaid Ayers Dorn. His 10-part series, Mother Country Radicals, recently won the Tribeca Film Festival Award for Best Podcast. I want to go back country radicals. In episode one, Zaid, you begin to unpack some of the conflicts that arose between predominantly white activists, like those in Students for a Democratic Society, the larger group from which um, members splintered off to form Weather Underground, and black activists, like those in the Black Panthers and later the Black Liberation Army. Let's first turn to Bernadine Dorn um, in Mother Country Radicals. Whenever white people have a choice, you can't make that choice without thinking about how how easy it is to not stand up for black people at a given moment. I never felt like I wasn't choosing women, but I felt that, you know, the the essential American dilemma is white people standing up not just once, but consistently over time against the apparatus of black slavery. And this is Angela Davis. She knew exactly how to make those connections long before the term intersectionality had ever been introduced. At a time when we hadn't yet developed the vocabulary that allowed us to talk about gender issues in a, an intersectional way, I read some of her communiques and my reaction was always, you know, right on. That's Angela Davis actually speaking about Bernadine. And Bernadine, I want to go to you next, because Angela Davis was on the FBI Most Wanted list. You replaced her on that list. I want to go back to that time. I mean, this is the um, FBI of J. Edgar Hoover. And for those who aren't familiar with this history, talk about how you got involved with SDS and then how you got involved with the Weather Underground, became the leader of the Weather Underground. Well, you know, it's astonishing, what can I say, to be—there's to, no such thing as replacing Angela Davis on any list or on anything. Um, she's a colleague and a comrade and a sister and a friend. But I think her pointing out that we didn't have language— back in 1969, 70, 71, 72, about—not just language, but the, the connective tissue of the word intersectionality, so that you didn't have to choose between being a woman and being against the war in Vietnam. That was insane, and yet the politics of the time made that often uh, true on the ground. So her—, her um, her whole life and her whole career uh, helping to make that manifest for Black Lives Matter and undocumented and unafraid and the activists of today is quite dramatic. And you can see their their wisdom and their uh, ability to uh, fight for unity at the same time as they have disagreements and move in different ways. Uh, you know, I'm filled with admiration for this generation of activists and, and awe, really, and t 
trying to tag along and keep up with them on the streets. Now, Bernadine, by the way, happy birthday. Uh, you've recently turned 80 years old. Now, interestingly, yes. <laughs> back decades ago, um, you were one of the older members of, uh, of the student movement and one of the older leaders. You actually uh, were in law school. Talk about what radicalized you at that time and then joining SDS and then why um, you uh, formed, with Bill Ayers and others, the Weather Underground? Um, I, you know, I always felt that I had been uh, a wimp, and by my failure to go south with SNCC and the Southern Civil Rights Movement, um, I thought about it. I didn't know anybody connected to it. I wanted to go, you know, my boyfriend talked me out of wanting to go, and it was ridiculous. So when um, when the civil rights movement, Dr. King and, and all the allies around him came to Chicago, I was a second-year law student, and I was like, this is it. I, I have to now put myself in this struggle here in Chicago and, if possible, with him. And I took a bunch of law students to meet with Dr. King. He, had, of course, as he always did, had tons of law firms and lawyers uh, around him and willing to help and organize. And he said to me—we uh, said, we'd like to do something. He said, uh, find the biggest slumlord in Chicago. Identify and give me the evidence for who the biggest slumlord is in Chicago. We ran back to the law school, the group of us from the University of Chicago Law School. We went to the law librarians, who we felt were the people who would help us, not so much the faculty. And uh, we spent a week uh, looking at records and going through, uh, you know, uh, films, and we couldn't find anything that would identify slumlords. We went back to Dr. King the next weekend ashamed, he did turn to me and say, what did you find? We said, we can't identify because of this, this, and this. And he said, Go, that's fine, we'll call a citywide rent strike. And we were moved on the agenda about how to organize a citywide rent strike. So it was, for me, uh, you know, so it's, it's an example of how if you just take a step toward the movement, toward somebody you admire, toward somebody who's organizing a, a, a campaign around you. You will stay yourself, but you will be changed by it, and you will grow from it. And I think that's still true today. And, Bill, a central tension in the podcast is the balance between your lives as activists uh, and that as parents. As, uh, could you talk about that? Maybe Zaid could chime in as well in terms of what he tried to do with the podcast. <laughs> You want me to start? Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, uh, the personal entry into the story is obviously these are my parents. I grew up, you know, when I was born, they were underground. They were on the run from the FBI. And so I grew up my first few years um, in this kind of strange situation of being underground, of knowing that we were underground, knowing that the FBI was chasing us, even though I'm not sure I knew what the FBI was. Um, and, you know, so when I started working on this project, a lot of it was me thinking I have two daughters now, and I was trying to imagine. You know, what kind of commitment would make people ready to, you know, have children when they were fugitives? I mean, to, to balance that idea. I mean, they were great parents, and yet there was this, this tension or this risk associated with, you know, having kids when you're uh, also fighting an armed revolution against the state. And, you know, my mom went to jail when I was a kid. My adopted brother.
brother Chesa. His parents both went to prison for decades. And so a lot of the show, and later on in the podcast, in, in episodes 9 and 10, a lot of it ends up being about my peers, you know, myself, Chesa Boudin, my adopted brother, Kakuya Shakur, who is Asada Shakur's daughter. And Asada, of course, is still uh, underground in Cuba. And so talking to Chesa and Kakuya about what it was like to be kids born into the revolution really informs a lot of the show and a lot of the kind of sense of what, what the questions I'm asking about how can you balance family with the struggle. And I mean, I think that um, one of Zaid's kids asked me the other day, uh, when you had kids, did that change your politics? And, um, you know, and she was referring to her father. And, <laughs> and she's I, 14. And she's 14 years old. Yeah. And I said to her that I thought that it, it certainly didn't make me change my politics, but it did make me think twice about the kinds of risks I w- was willing to take and wanted to take. I had a particular responsibility to this child, to Malik, the next child, and to Chesa. We had a particular responsibility to them. We also couldn't lose sight of the fact that other people's children were under attack in Vietnam, in the United States, and we couldn't, in Puerto Rico, and we couldn't just let that go. And I don't think that contradiction is any different than the contradictions faced by revolutionaries and radicals around the world through all time. So you talk a little bit about, you know, what about Martin Luther King or Malcolm X? Fred Hampton had a son, so, you know. Fred Hampton or, you know, um, the Haymarket folks. I mean, Mm -hmm. you refer to all of them. There's a picture, I don't know if it's in this, but of Zaid <laughs> on his changing table, or I think it just was a table in our house at the time. Um, and, you know, I had a picture of Ho Chi Minh right next to him, and who else? Che Guevara. <laughs> che Guevara. <laughs> and, uh, but also, you know, Zaid was... Uh, Robin Hood for several years at Halloween time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for him, the sheriff of Nottingham, you know, characterized uh, a lot of the evil that we were seeing from our own government. So, yeah, we, we tried to make it uh, integrated with our, with our life once we yeah. had children. Well, I want to go to an exchange in Episode 9 of Mother Country Radicals between you, Zaid, um, and your father, Bill Ayers. Did you ever take part in actions after I was born while you were still underground? I was involved in a few things, and one of them was, in fact, a a jailbreak. And I can't tell you any of the details except to say that we were pretty clear that Bernadine would be with you and that I would do this, and then we would uh, assess it after the fact. But it was, in retrospect, really risky and really on the edge. Mm Mm-hmm. This was new information for me. Before I started working on this project, I always thought, I was always told that my parents' part in the armed struggle ended with my birth. But I can't say I'm exactly surprised. I've always known they were willing to risk almost anything to do what they thought was right. Did you think about what would happen if you were caught? Yeah, I thought my life would end. So why? Because it mattered because the world needed it to happen. Bill Ayers and Zaid Ayers-Dorn. So let's talk about this issue of violence and Bernadine and Bill, how you felt then and how you feel today. Either of you can take it. If you could talk about—I mean, there are some actions you admit uh, involvement in and some you don't. 
Well, I don't. <laughs> Just to be clear, uh, except for, you know, the communiques, which I was definitely part of. But I think, um, you, you know, we live, It's it always seems odd to me to be asked about the question of violence. We live in the mo one of the most violent countries in human history. We have military still to this day in scores of countries around the world. Imagine if some other country, Italy, had a military base in the middle of North Carolina. I mean, it's it's unspeakable the way one thing we take for granted, United States should be have arms and wars everywhere in the world, and on the other hand, you know, we're a sacred country. So I think telling the truth about what the cost of violence is uh, U.S. violence in the world and having that feel part of us. Of course, I want to just say Democracy Now! with you, Amy, and you, Juan, has always covered uh, U.S. wars abroad and, and done really a remarkable job of, of making that part of what we have to think about every day uh, and, and the concrete nature of that and who pays the heaviest prices. So, but, but the illusion of, of the United States as being against violence, what can you say? You know, this yeah. last year, children killed, it's unspeakable. So, so we had a focus on that. We thought we saw the truth and we thought it didn't have to be this way. We could save lives. And I think it's still true. I think we live in a sewer of violence, and we like to think of ourselves as peaceful people. We want to think of the United States as a peaceful place, but it's just not true. It's a violent, violent society. And at the time when we were, you know, part of the Weather Underground, 6,000 people a week were being murdered by our government in Vietnam. And we were trying to rise up to stop the genocide. That was our purpose. But it always, as Bernadine said, strikes us as odd that John McCain, who was a war criminal, was not always asked, what, what does it feel like to be a war criminal? But we were trying to stop the war crimes and were always asked, you know, why were you violent? It's like asking, you know, uh, Nat Turner, why did you rise up and kill people on the plantation? Well, wait, the whole system was violent. Rising up against it was the right thing. I wanted to ask Bill and Bernadine about your decision to go underground and then about your decision to resurface. Well, we, you know, we went underground the day after uh, the explosion at the townhouse. And in explain the that explosion. And, pardon me? Explain that explosion. Well, uh, we heard on the news, actually, uh, um, in, in, I was in California, Bill was still in Michigan, you in Michigan, and uh, we, um, I heard on the news that there had been a, a gas leak explosion in New York. We thought that was probably, I thought that was probably not a gas explosion, and I took that news to be very bad news, um, I, because I had been in New York a week before, and I knew that people were working on, on uh, explosive devices. I didn't know where or what. That, that, that explosion really uh, meant that scores of us around the country disappeared. 
um, and we had thought that it would be necessary for some people to build a clandestine operation organization um, because of government misconduct and government um, violence, really, against uh, the activists. But we didn't really know how it would come about, and it came about in that chaotic way where lots of people disappeared. And then over the course of the next year, people decided to return to their lives uh, and and work, you know, in organizations, public organizations, and other people, for a variety of reasons, um, decided to join the underground and be part of the underground. It was a very—even uh, after that moment— Amy and Juan, you know, over the course of the 10 years, people actually came and went. Many people left being underground um, after Stonewall happened because they were gay activists and they wanted to join the public movement. And similarly with other things, sometimes family matters, sometimes personal things, and sometimes wanting to be public. So there was there was more churning than one would think. Um, and in the actual way in which it happened, uh, and I, I, I like that part of it that it had. Um, you could be underground; it could be assumed that you would never talk about it, but you could go back and do public work. And eventually, of course, we all did that. You know, the the when I think about the the, the choice to go underground, we the the American invasion occupation of Vietnam began in 1965. For five years. We opposed the war with militant actions, with, with letter writing, with, you know, talking to Congress people and so on. Eventually, by 1968, a majority of Americans opposed the war and the war ground on. 6,000 people a week being murdered in Southeast Asia. And we had tried everything. And I, and I think about the choice to go underground. We knew or we thought by 1970 that we would have to build some clandestine capacity not only to take the war to the war makers, but also to survive what we thought of as an impending American fascism. So we were building a clandestine organization alongside a public organization. And then the townhouse explosion happened. Three of our comrades were killed. And um, we all went underground in a minute. We didn't want to build a, a spent all of our time building a legal system and so on. So we were underground. And then the war in Vietnam ended in 1975 with the U.S. defeat, which was brought about by the Vietnamese Revolution itself. And we spent another couple of years, you know, thinking about coming above ground. And it took a while to persuade Bernadine because she didn't want to <laughs> she didn't want to give the, the state any kind of victory. But eventually we did. And we went back to uh, public political work. And, and, and so that was the, the 11 years we spent underground. Zaid was born underground. Malik was born underground. Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn with their son Zaid Ayers Dorn, producer of the new 10-part podcast series, Mother Country Radicals, back in 20 seconds. Bob Dylan here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we continue with Bernadine Dorn, Bill Ayers, and Zaid Ayers Dorn. 
I wanted to ask Zaid, uh, in addition to looking at this history, uh, your podcast, Mother Country Radicals, also tries to look forward to the to the future of activism. Could you tell us about what you found out about the next generation of activists? Yeah, I mean, it's connected to this question of violence, I think, because the people who I talked to, I mean, my brother, Chase Boudin, who, you know, saw his parents, you know, when he was one and a half, they left him with a babysitter and went off to rob a bank with the Black Liberation Army and then uh, never came home, spent decades in prison. And so he grew up with us uh, kind of dealing with the consequences of that violent struggle. Or Kakuya Shakur, who I speak to later in the podcast, her mom, you know, was imprisoned and then had to flee to Cuba and is still underground 20 years, 30 years later, 40 years later. And uh, Kakuya talks about, you know, her mom has never met her children. Asada Shakur has never met her grandchildren. This is another clip from Mother Country Radicals. This is Kakuya Shakur, Asada Shakur's daughter. This might be an impossible question, or, or maybe it's not. Maybe it's an easy question, but it's a big question. Do you think it was worth it, what your mom tried to do and what your family went through for it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That That's a deep question, right? I felt deeply loved by my mom, but I knew that struggle, you know, was was more important in the broader context. So many different points in our history. It's like we had no choice but to, you know, to struggle, to resist. And unfortunately, loss was a part of that. All the struggles that came before are contributing to us being in this moment now. Every act that happens then creates another act. I can almost feel that my life is a result of all of these experiences, the atrocities, the trauma, the struggle, the joy as well. I'm a result of all of that. These are all young people who had to live with the consequences of that violent struggle. And yet most of the people I talk to of my generation are still committed in some way to that struggle for a better world. So Chesa, of course, became a public defender and then the district attorney of San Francisco. Kakuya Shakur is working as a social worker here in Chicago. So I think a lot of them grapple, and I talk to them on the show about this, uh, they grapple with, you know, what does it mean to try to change the world? How far should we go? And also, they're very aware of kind of what it can look like when people decide to go down the path of revolutionary violence, what that does to families, what that does to individuals. And so I think it's a complicated question, and I try to wrestle in the show with that complexity. I want to go to another clip of Mother Country Radicals as you raise Kathy Boudin, who just recently died of cancer, the former Weather Underground member. Um, she was jailed in 1981, along with her then-husband, David Gilbert, in connection with the armed car robbery carried out by the Black Liberation Army in Rockland County, New York, that left a security guard and two police officers dead. She would serve 22 years in prison. And as you mentioned, Chesa, their son, Chesa Boudin, he went on to be elected uh, the district attorney of San Francisco and was recently recalled. In this clip, Kathy Boudin talks about being Chesa's mother. I was determined to not have being a mother stop me from also being a revolutionary, because that identity for me was so critical. And I think also in terms of men and women, I felt like I wasn't going to have me as a woman not be able to go do something and have David be able to go 
and that you know relegated me to to a role of, of a mother, which I felt like was something that I wanted as part of who I was, but I didn't want it to take away from me the other things that I wanted to be and could do. So that's Kathy Boudin. She also talks about how Bernadine and Bill—Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers, our guest today—ended up adopting their son, Chesa, while Kathy and her husband, David Gilbert, were imprisoned. He had no idea who I was. I mean, he didn't look at me. He didn't pay attention to me. Of course, Chesa, as he began to speak, called Bernadine mom. And I was like, oh, God, you know. And this is an important part of the story, too the collateral damage to the next generation, the children of the victims of the Brinks robbery and the children of the people who committed the crime. Because none of those kids chose to be part of the revolution. They, we, were born into it and still had to suffer the consequences. That's Zaid Ayers Dorn narrating um, this incredible series. Um, Bill and Bernadine, if you can talk about how you ended up adopting Chesa, um, uh, you know, having Chesa, adding to your family of Malik and Zaid, um, and what you saw your role was together, you not in prison, them in prison, and so many uh, Black Panthers and members of the Black Liberation Army actually killed. Well, I, I'm glad you brought up Kathy's name, and I, I uh, you know, of course, we're, we're all stricken um, by her absence. It seems like a sudden absence, even though it was a 30-year struggle that she had against cancer. Uh, she and I had a long two days of conversations the week she died, and, and you know, we had we we part of it was just spurred by her saying we've had an incredible relationship <laughs> and we really have had an incredible women's friendship and sisterhood um, hard hard fought for very difficult for her in the years when she was in prison and we were raising Chesa very difficult for us to have Chesa do so many prison visits during this period of time when he was struggling with many other issues and yet we somehow worked very hard, and and uh, her parents worked very hard, David's parents, to uh, make it one family. You know, many families in America, because of the massive prison system, are faced with this situation of a fa critical family member in prison and children visiting prisons. And uh, so it's—we were not alone, and that, I think, helped— um, and 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 brought Chesa into the struggle against mass incarceration, uh, and all, it really all of our children have uh, vivid memories of getting searched and going into prison to visit Kathy in particular, and so um, you know it is part of the American story in an odd part for us, but not really odd at all, very common. We must do away with mass incarceration. It's insane. There's a million ways to sanction illegal behavior that the rest of the world does quite successfully. You know, we, we uh, had two little kids when Kathy and David were arrested. We had not met Chesa, but Bernadine and I, I was working in a daycare center in Manhattan. Bernadine and I had one conversation. We took a long walk around the block. And we said, if something were to happen to us, 
what would our friends, what would our family, what would our comrades do? And without much thought, we said, we're going to take him. And we went and talked to his grandparents where he was living just a few days later. And he came to live with us right away. And it changed the dynamic of the family. And, and uh, you know, and, and it, was, it was enriching in the long run and very powerful. And so we're not, we have no regrets on that regard. Um, you know, Zaid just said, you know, kids have to suffer the consequences. And that's true. But that's also universally true. Imagine Ted Cruz's kids. They have to suffer the consequences <laughs> of having Ted Cruz for a father. You know, I mean, so everybody gets the family they get. And you roll with it from there. And I, we tried to roll with it with love and compassion and engagement. That's where we were. Luckily, Bill was a you know longtime early childhood educator and had the confidence to do this. I'm not. I'm not sure without him, I would have ever even thought of it. So we we made a family, and and uh, you know both Malik uh, Dorn and who was just six months older than Chesa. Our early pictures are of them holding hands and them building blocks. Zaid then became Chase's protector and really uh, helped him into school and, and reading and uh, friendships, making friends with people, you know, as a, as a model. And that <clears throat> Chase would have gotten there anyway, wherever he was. But in our family, that was how it worked. And, you know, it was wonderful to have <laughs> the surprise family of three boys <laughs> that I never expected. And finally, Zaid, what it was like to do this podcast, this audio storytelling for which you addressed won the best audio storytelling at the Tribeca Film Festival, of these public figures who were known all over the country, especially at that time, your mother, um, what did— J. Edgar Hoover called her the most dangerous woman in America, uh, to tell the story of these public figures who you know so intimately, who you know as mom and dad. Yeah, well, I mean, that was a big part of why I wanted to do this, is because I obviously know them very well, and I've seen my whole life the different public stories that are out there about them. And I wanted to tell a story that was about the, the people I know, not just my parents, but their friends and comrades, these people who, in some ways, have been represented in the media for 40 or 50 years, but I think have ne we've never really actually understood what drove them, what made them want to, you know, kind of conduct the struggle in the way they did, what radicalized them. And so, for me, it was about understanding my parents, helping my daughters understand my parents. And I think people who listen will not only get a sense of the history, but even if you know the history, I don't know that any anybody has seen, you know, has actually heard these people at length discuss why they did what they did and what brought them to that place in their lives. Zaid Ayers Dorn, creator and host of the new 10-part podcast series, Mother Country Radicals, from Crooked Media and Odyssey, featuring his parents, the former Weather Underground leaders Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers. The series has been a top 10 podcast in the country. People can listen to the whole thing now, the whole series, for free on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll link to it at Democracy now.org. 
Democracy Now! produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warnock, Trina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamaria Studio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, and Mary Conlon. Our executive director, Julie Crosby. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us.